the purpose of the fraction talk isn't to solve a different problem. Reasoning about the image is the problem. And that's what I like about them. Like it's the self-contained nature of the goal isn't to arrive anywhere. It's just to kind of stay a while and like think about what's going on. And I think that's where you get all this sort of, it's very inviting in that way where a lot of students, they will perform a fraction addition incorrectly. Like they will not Today we speak with Nat Banting so from like Saskatoon, like Saskatchewan. Nat is a high school math teacher turned pre-service instructor who's created amazing free resources like FractionTalks.com and MenuMath. Nat was also the winner of the 2019 Rosenthal Prize for Innovation and Inspiration in Math Teaching, awarded by the National Museum of Mathematics in New York. In this rich discussion with Nat, you'll learn how creating limitations and constraints can drive good learning, how you can spark discussions and deep thinking around fractions, and how to spark curiosity and fuel sense-making with abstract concepts. Let's do this! Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. I'm Kyle Pierce from tapintoteamminds.com. And I'm John Orr from MrOrrIsAGeek.com. We are two math teachers who together with you, the community of math moment makers worldwide who want to build and deliver math lessons that spark curiosity, fuel sense-making, and ignite your teacher moves. Are you ready, John, to dive in with this great, great discussion that we're engaging in with our friend Nat? Of course, Kyle. Of course, as always, we are honored to have our guest Nat here with us. Just before we get that, uh, we do want to talk about some upcoming info, but it seems these days that our communities are getting more and more divided. It seems on many fronts, there is an us versus them mentality. And Kyle, you know, the math community is not an exception to this worrying condition. Yeah, you're right there, John. When exploring new approaches to teaching and learning mathematics, we're often confronted with very absolute views that seem to pit one extreme against the other. Ideas such as direct instruction versus inquiry lessons or grades versus gradeless assessment practices, or we even hear things about homework or versus no homework or maybe hands-on collaborative tasks versus independent worksheet practice. It seems regardless of what pedagogical approaches we wish to explore, it's a sure bet that you'll find someone out there who believes that it's poor practice. So true, so true. And uh, folks feel very strongly on both sides. And uh, so join us in our new webinar, The Tortoise and the Hare, How Math Class Missed the Morrow and How to Fix It, as we explore the two systems for thinking in the brain and how mathematics education often only serves one. Yeah, that's right, John. Uh, We're going to be sharing practical classroom lessons and routines that not only help you find the right balance in your mathematics program, but will also help your students to define an identity that they value in your math class. Register for this free webinar at makemathmoments.com forward slash webinar. Our webinar will only run once on January 12th, 2021 at 4 p.m. Eastern time. So stop what you're doing right now and register. By registering, we'll send you a confirmation email that includes the How to Make Math Moments guidebook. Plus, we'll ensure you get access to the limited replay. Fantastic. Yes. So this is the only reminder we're going to send out via the podcast. So pause and head on over to makemathmoments.com forward slash webinar so that you can get all the details for this one-time webinar happening on January 12th, 2021 at 4 p.m. Eastern time. Again, like John said, Get yourself signed up and you'll get that replay email so that you can hop in and uh, watch it even if you can't be there live. So head on over, makemathmoments.com forward slash webinar. All right, all right, enough from us. Let's get on with this fantastic conversation with Nat. Hey there, Nat. Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. We are pumped to 
chat with you today. How are you doing over in Saskatchewan? Doing pretty well. I know I'm not the uh, first guest from Saskatchewan, so it's kind of becoming a <laughs> you know a province is having a little bit more of a footprint on the podcast, but just kind of steady as she goes. That's what we're like here out west. Just kind of take things as they come and maybe a slower pace kind of thing. Yeah. You know what? I'm actually, I was thinking this morning when I woke up, I'm like, darn, I used my Saskatchewan shirt that Kirsten Dick gave. I got Uh, one too. (laughs) Yeah. She sent one to John and I and how awesome. I know that uh, you two cats are fairly familiar with one another. Maybe we'll get into that a little later. Before we do, on the connection between you and Kirsten, who's also been on, I think, two episodes on the podcast so far, tell us a little bit about yourself. We know you. We've heard you speak at OAME. What's your role in education? And what landed you into the teaching space in mathematics? Yeah. Okay. So uh, role in education. I mean, if you would have asked me that like five years ago, you would have got a pretty standard and predictable answer in that regard. Now, in the last few years, I've kind of been <laughs> bouncing around as opportunity has presented itself. And I've kind of learned just to take every year at a time. And yeah, when that possibility kind of actualizes in front of me, I'm learning to take it and then seeing where it goes. So I guess at the beginning of all this, I'm a classroom mathematics teacher. So I've done that for about 10 years. And then with some other roles sort of sprinkled in there. So there was one year where I was a consultant for my division or my district, I think, or my school board, depending on where you're from, you kind of call that a different thing. And so working with other math teachers while maintaining my math practice myself. So that was something that I really value. So I kind of said I would do the coaching or consulting role as long as half time I got to stay with my learners, because that's kind of, you know, if you're going to ask me what the core, what makes me passionate about teaching that it's being with learners and that hasn't changed. Yeah, so that was the first kind of 10 years. This year, there was an opportunity that arose at the local university here in Saskatoon, the University of Saskatchewan, where the math ed methods professor went on sabbatical. And so I had known him for years. And so I applied and got that position for the one year. And so I've been teaching post-secondary undergraduate teachers to be. And that has been really fun as well, like totally different. But there are moments where I would sit back in class and it's supposed to be, you know, like a 300 level lecture. And I'm like, this is exactly what would happen in grade nine. (laughs) You would be surprised. I found that teaching the younger grades, the seven, eights, and nines really kind of prepared me more for the undergrads than maybe the tens and elevens, you know, when school math gets really serious. So yeah, it's been an interesting ride. How I got here? Yeah, that's a really good question. I've kind of always been attracted to teaching and mathematics in general. As long as I can remember, I've had a way of seeing the world, like I'd like to mathematize my surroundings. And that's maybe a word that came later through my study of education. But I can remember ways like I would, when a group of people is working on a task, I'm kind of always obsessed as a young child. And maybe even to this day, if you ask my wife, I'm sure she'd say so of like, what is the most efficient way? Like what job could I be doing now? And what could you be doing? So there's no like dead space, like these sort of ways of mathematizing existence. And so I think that kind of brought me into the profession. Now, kind of with the work that I'm doing, I'm recognizing that, yeah, even though I had these ways of thinking mathematically and making my world a mathematical one, probably I also gravitated towards teaching mathematics because it kind of pulled me in. Like it gave me this kind of power that I didn't have to ask for just by who I was. And so maybe like I gravitated towards the math because it had this explanatory power, but at least partially I think I gravitated towards the math because it granted me power. And so that's kind of a thing that I'm sort of thinking about now is I always kind of painted myself as like, I chose to be a teacher. I chose to work hard at mathematics, you know, in school mathematics. I chose to see the world in this way. But like, there's a lot of things that probably happened in my past that brought me in because of what benefited me and not necessarily what I was offering to the profession, so to speak. I'm dying to like, see what cooking dinner in your house would be. You going back to that group scenario where you're like trying to think of how to be most efficient. No, you put the rice in this container because it's going to fit more. It's going to fit, you know, blah, blah, blah. But exactly, <laughs> that's, right? I don't know why that's what I pictured. I was like, oh, I see you in the kitchen is like, no, no, we're going to start this now and we're going to work on the pasta in two minutes because yeah. then it's going to be perfect. When it <laughs> and comes if I out. can pull myself out of that for a moment. So that's like me as a mathematizer, maybe. But the math teacher in me wants to actually create a different scenario. I have different goals, right? So my goal isn't to be the most efficient off the bat. That robs the opportunity of maybe my young son and daughter like 
producing that efficiency themselves. So probably I'm a little bit more disruptive now. I'll be like, you know, instead of saying, no, you do this and then you do this, like I'm not the task driver that I am. But as an educator, I'm probably the one that's, you know, taking away the third of a cup and being like, oh man, now we have to do this because that's a more yeah. productive opportunity. <laughs> right, totally. <laughs> Let's totally. really throw this for a whirl. Exactly, right? You know, I, I totally understand that because you said you were drawn to math because of the power and the mathematizing. For me, it was like the structure of math because I was a product and taught very traditionally. I was a product of that traditional here. This is a very structural place that you're going to be in. And I think I really enjoyed the structure of like, hey, I'm going to get a lesson today. I'm going to follow these procedures and then I'm going to reproduce them. For me, back in high school, that was, I think, why I liked math, even though today is a whole different ballgame for me on the idea of like the creativity that math had that I didn't experience. And this disruptor is like exactly where we've become or that you're describing, like it's completely changed. And I want to explore that with you just a little bit. What did early teacher look like for Nat? Like when you first came out of teacher's college and pre-service teaching, did it look like the teaching that you had had as a teacher? Like almost all of us have, we kind of mimic what we know. And then how did that progression change? Like, can you imagine like where it happened? And like, what was the moment? Or maybe you were teaching phenomenally right out of the gate. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> Not to brag, but, I'm waiting yeah. for someone to say I was pretty awesome yeah. right out of the gate. <laughs> That's when you go sleuthing and find like eight or nine ex students to bring onto the podcast and just blow that theory out of the water. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know. Like, what did early? You know, you ever um, go back through like a home video? Now we have them all on our phones, and we finally you decide, oh, I'm out of space. I have to go back and be a little bit more selective on which videos I keep. It's an uncomfortable thing as teachers. I find curating a blog for as long as I have now to go back to those early posts. Goodness sake, is it uncomfortable? Like, and then I'm thinking, like, this is public. <laughs> People are reading this, maybe. Like, maybe not. But you know, I, and so this question, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. I kind of came out of teacher prep, ready to go. Like, I've always been energetic, kind of my classroom. I like it to be bustling. I like to be, you know, working in the moments. So I think that hasn't changed. I would describe how I went through school, like fairly, do I want to say standard, like this idea of, yeah, I looked forward to maybe it was the structure and it was kind of the familiarity of mathematics. I also always knew that I would get it, you know, and that's just part of who math was built for. It's just built for me. Like I've never had the doubt that I didn't belong there. Right. And so when you enter the world of education, that's a tough thing to come to grips to. And that continued through post-secondary. I just figured if I sat down, my memory was good enough. I had a work ethic. And I, this is kind of what I believed it to be mathematical, right, is, is to do these things. It sounds fairly similar to what your experience would be. How has that changed? I think, and this is kind of what I told my undergrads this year, is I finished my math degree concurrently with my ed degree, but I think I got through, I managed to get through a university, like an undergraduate math degree, without doing any mathematics. Like, I just don't think I ever thought mathematically. I was good enough at playing the game that I could just kind of memorize kind of any situation that was thrown my way or maybe notice an anomaly and kind of connect it back to another piece very well. Like, maybe that's a mathematical act, but I knew a lot of mathematics. And so right now, almost all of that is gone. (laughs) Like, I got amazing grades. Don't get me wrong, the school validated me at every turn. But I don't know how mathematically I was actually being until education, right? And then you start to think about, well, what's the purpose here? And I think you pointed at that as like, we, we like it because of structure. And the purpose as a student is to take advantage of that structure. And then for me, teaching kind of at the beginning, I think was the same. I was trying to harness that structure, maybe with more student choice, maybe more creatively. And I think I've always had that bent since the, and I came along in teaching in 2010. So that very much was the climate of education was this turn towards that. But I think it was still my math meaning. Like if I think about it, I think I was still trying to project how I mathematized. And now I've taken a heavy, heavy lean towards observing and listening students. And I think I was just really bad at that. I think if you walked into my room right now, you would be much more likely to see me kind of looking puzzled attentively listening to a student rather than at the beginning. I think I would kind of be like, almost waiting in the weeds, waiting for that strategy to come out. So I could be like, see, look, this is how math works. I planned that it happened. And then it happened, you know, like and try to do that creatively. But now I'm much more comfortable with not knowing and really just listening with students. And I think that's what I truly enjoy now about the craft of math teaching. Like John said, like, that's exactly my experience in university. I went through, I did okay. I had one or two courses I didn't do so well in. But ironically, during that time during that experience, I was finding ways to blame other people, blame the prof, blame my schedule, 
all of these things. Like I did a lot of blaming, but in reality, it was because I actually wasn't doing mathematics. I was doing a lot of memorizing. And like you said, I had been validated all the way through because I could maintain those high grades. And it took a long time for me as a teacher even to reflect and say, wow, maybe there's more to this than what I thought. What popped into my mind as you were sharing was just this challenge in math education. I find as we go up the grades, it gets even more difficult to try to shift beliefs. And this can be educator beliefs, because I think so many of us, especially in the older grades who went through and got your math degree and then became a teacher, we've been validated all the way through. And then maybe it just hasn't hit a lot of people that, oh, Like it worked well for me that way, but maybe that's not really all there is to it. And that's definitely something that's really challenging for us in this space to try to help the entire community of math educators kind of shift that way. And I'm hearing it in your voice. I know for myself, I'm so happy that I hit that point where it kind of went, uh, maybe it's not all about like, you know, hard work is important, but it wasn't just because I worked hard and memorized. Like now I'm seeing, wow, there's so much more to this. And there's so many different more perspectives that I had no idea about. So I love this idea of you sitting there. I'm picturing you in your classroom, kind of that puzzled look you had, which sometimes is probably like a fake puzzled look where you're like, huh, tell me more about that. And you're sitting and observing more than just doing all the preaching. Like that's also something I commented on Twitter with a couple friends. They were saying, oh, you know, Nat, he's so good at observing and like really listening to students. And it's like he doesn't even know what's the answer. And I kind of responded, well, it's really easy to pretend you don't know the answer when you don't know the answer, right? Like this, (laughs) this kind of like humility is there. Yeah, I just think learning now for me is such an intensely personal thing. Like making meaning is a really personal thing. And I just think, that I was so privileged going through mathematics because the way I made that meaning personally was also the way that was like historically validated as mathematics, right? And so I'm not saying that maybe what I was doing wasn't mathematics. I just think it was the brand of mathematics, maybe capital M mathematics. That is just like not questioned. It's taken as true, right? And so now I kind of feel like I went through years of teaching, you know, 13, 14 year olds and really maybe not observing their meaning making. And and that's, Yeah, I think that's something that we're missing as teachers. I don't think we should miss that opportunity. Hey, Math Moment Makers, Kyle here. And I've got just a quick message specifically for our district-level mathematics decision makers out there. Do you feel like you're spinning your wheels when making district-level goals for mathematics programming from kindergarten through grade 12? setting new goals each year only to find little to no real shift in pedagogical practice or educator content knowledge across the district as a whole. Take a moment to book a short call with our team so we can learn more about your specific district and educator learning needs in mathematics so we can assist you in taking the first step of many in the right direction. Visit makemathmoments.com forward slash district to book a web call with our team today. We have a limited number of spots for districts just like yours. So don't wait. Head to makemathmoments.com forward slash district and grab a spot in our calendar now. Oh, for sure. For sure. And I agree. It's like there's a lot that we were doing and in our experience that were obviously very important parts of mathematics as well. And just seeing that other side. And I love the idea of when you were saying like being humble and oftentimes we don't know the answer when we're telling kids, I don't know. The beauty is if you're saying you don't know all the time, kids start to think that you're just faking it all the time and it almost pumps your tires even more. So then the time you're really confused, it's like, oh, well, I got let off the hook there, which is kind of nice. So there's some fun ways to approach that for sure. But you know what, Nat, before we get deeper into this conversation, we cannot overlook this particular question. We ask every guest to describe a memorable math moment from their past. It could be when you're a student or when you're a teacher, but when you're thinking about math class, is there like a moment, maybe it was a defining moment that got you into education. Maybe it was a moment that made you feel empowered, or maybe it was a moment that maybe didn't make you feel so great about yourself in the math classroom. What pops into your mind when we say math moment for you? 
Right. Yeah. I think one of the nice benefits of being comfortable teaching with like a high degree of almost like volatility, like I like to give students a lot of control is there's a lot of memorable moments because it's maybe not as scripted as maybe it was when I started. But one thing is always kind of common in all these is that like you're genuinely surprised. I think that's just such a nice thing to happen in the classroom when you're like caught off guard by brilliance and you just have to take a moment to sort of absorb it. And that could be like an epiphany that comes to you or like you're observing the epiphany of a student. I remember one in particular when I thought about this question, having listened before to the podcast, I was in grade 10, I believe, and my math teacher gave me and one other student the problem to trisect an angle, like we were doing some geometry. And so we were fairly precocious. He asked us, please trisect this angle. We're like, yeah, we got this. So we worked together for so long, right? Like, this is like barely on the edge of you just Google it. Like, I think now kids Google it, and it ruins the problem. But we went at it, like we knew how to bisect an angle. We had all our postulates at our hands, and we were kind of going through it. And several times we went to the, he was also the principal, we went to him with our proof to show him that this was trisected. We had done it three or four different times, so it wasn't just in one exam, and we were going through it. And then I remember as I was entering teacher education, I was volunteering in my high school when I moved back, and I was in a math class, and they were learning the two-column like deductive proof that's kind of taken over geometry. And at one point, I said, well, let's try this problem. I remembered it, like trisect the angle. And then we were going through it, and someone was like, well, let's just half it until it becomes a third. So we went through all these things, and in the moment as I was doing this, I was like, there's no way this list will ever be split in thirds. Because this is not a geometry problem. This is a prime factorization problem. And I just was like, <gasps> like in that moment, I was just like, <laughs> half of me is like, dude, you are such a moron. Like, how could you not see this as a 16 year old? But also I was like, this is gorgeous. Because like in a problem that was posed to me as one of geometry and I had attacked exclusively as geometric, the problem the whole time was, you know, one of number and, and number theory. I just thought that was such a beautiful moment to kind of come into this epiphany of like, not epiphany, you're brilliant, but epiphany wow, math kind of like, this works really well. Like, this is very nice, yeah. It's amazing when things click and there's so many moments. I think math class, now I'm being biased because I've only been in math classes for the last, <laughs> you know, 17 years. But I feel like math class has those moments and not too many other classes have that for kids to say like, when that happens, you can see it on students' faces and teachers' faces too. And it's pretty awesome. And I think this is a nice segue into your moment into a couple of the resources that you actively share and create in the Twitterverse or blogosphere. And there's a couple that we want to chat about, but we definitely want to chat about FractionTalks.com. And then the other one we want to get into is Menu Math. So Fraction Talks is a great site to promote discussions around fractions and number theory, and there's so much going on there. What inspired you to put FractionTalks.com together, and how do you envision educators and maybe even parents using the resources with students? Yeah, okay. So like the first thing off the hop that we have to know about this is it was like a complete accident. Like it wasn't like I sat down. To like all like, good things, right? Yeah, right. It was kind of like, so what happened was, like I'll give you the backstory. They'll tell you kind of how it's evolved. And then you can choose to believe like this was intentional. It totally <laughs> wasn't. So I was sitting at actually at a conference presentation by Lanny Horn. And it was in 2015. And like, it wasn't a bad talk. Like, I actually really enjoyed it. But one of her slides had a picture of a area model that was cut with like a couple diagonal lines. And to that moment, I couldn't believe it. But, like I had never seen that. And I was like, okay, I'd been teaching for five years at that point. I was like, oh, that's curious. And so I started sketching in my, I have a notebook I bring to all the conferences and kind of jot down my ideas as they come so I don't lose them. And I drew five or six other ones. And I'm like, oh, this is curious. Like, which one of these would be the hardest, yada, yada, yada. And then from that, I'm like, man, I think this is interesting. But I don't have a lot of chance to talk about these things because I'm a secondary math teacher. So by the time the students get to me, as I'm sure is the case with all secondary teachers, Students completely understand all about fractions. <laughs> always, <laughs> always. Oh, yeah. so I know it's the same. I know Saskatchewan <laughs> is in some utopia where everyone understands fractions. So I started trying to, you know, digging in with my relationships to elementary school teachers and working with our grade nines. They do some fraction operations there and then lower in the grades and just kind of to see how these things were sponsoring this activity. And the big shift for me was why I started to really like them. And then I would tweet them and people would like make them and I hardly make them at all. Like I just kind of, take the problem that they tweet, ask them for permission, I just throw it up there and then retweet, you know, when people are using them, there's been a really cool wave of people um, during quarantine doing them on sidewalks, you know, like yeah, writing right, out one yeah. of the, and the Seen a lot of those. sidewalk chalk. Yeah, it's an interesting way that we've been creative with these things. I'm just happy that it's there. 
yeah. And so I went through it. And usually when I'd seen a fraction model, they were always like pre-done. Like there was no decisions left to be made. Like if you were talking about quarters, it was pre-sectioned into quarters. They were already lined up. They were usually rectangles. The lines were only vertical ever. And so I was like, oh, that's like a lot of the work. Like we're talking about mathematical modeling and the model is there and complete. And that type of model is used to solve a different problem. So it's used to solve the exercise. I say one half plus a quarter. You then realize that halves should be quarters. So they're added together and you use the models and the fraction strips or whatever, and it's there. The purpose of the fraction talk isn't to solve a different problem. Reasoning about the image is the problem. And that's what I like about them. Like it's the self-contained nature of the goal isn't to arrive anywhere. It's just to kind of stay a while and like think about what's going on. And I think that's where you get all this sort of, it's very inviting in that way where a lot of students, they will perform a fraction addition incorrectly like they will not make a common denominator and i'm so frustrated but like with the image they're like well those aren't the same size so i'll just make them the same yeah you can't do that yeah. like, these are different i can't count those yeah right it's totally they're welcome like they would question well and i know we have these students before they do anything they're like well can i and they ask permission right they don't feel that kind of power or agency to do it with the fraction talk they're like oh i'll just cut it it's just so inviting they're like i'll just slice it it's just so natural whereas with the notation i'd Hey, should I find a common denominator? You know, as if I have to be like, did I do this right? You yeah, know, go ahead. Like I now, you know, I am the gatekeeper and I say, you may use the common denominator. And so that's what I loved about them. And the coolest part is just watching people use them. I think that's the nicest part of any resource that kind of takes off is just in my limited sphere of influence. I use them with students as I am sort of like creatively bound to do so. But watching other people in their context has been really, really fun, particularly with the really young kids. And I have a son now going into grade one next year. And so as he grows up, I'm paying more attention to how like the primary grade teachers have used fraction talks. People like Simon Gregg on Twitter, who's just masterful. Like I want to somehow get over to Europe so my son can be in this class. <laughs> I feel like from what I've seen, it would be phenomenal. Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of what it is. They're sitting there at fractiontalks.com and I've done my best to kind of present not only the images, but also there's sort of like a how-to kind of spot where you can kind of like, there's some teacher prompts and maybe the rationale is described. And then there's a blog that goes with it where teachers who are using them, I try to like amplify what they've done. And sometimes they have like permission to post some videos there's a teacher in also a Canadian teacher who has made a fraction talk war game, which is really, really cool. Very creatively sectioned. And that's uh, Carla Dawson, I think in British Columbia, I believe her stuff is all linked there. And so the goal is community building. I mean, really, I'd have to go back and credit Dr. Horn for her influence on it, even though I don't know if it was on purpose. And these things aren't new. Like I found them in textbooks, like early as like the 1930s, like when we went through and we'd kind of dusted up all these old maps. There were dividing squares like this for a long time, but it's the context in which that they're divided, right? This idea that these are a tool for conversation and sense-making and reasoning and not a tool to get at a solution for an exercise, right? And so, yeah, it's been fun. I'm looking at those fraction cards right now and they look slick. It's yeah. like you print them yeah, out. Yeah, you have to and, toss the link in the resources there. Uh, and, yeah, I, I will yeah. for sure. And uh, it's like you print them out and then it's like throw this down and who's got the bigger one. That's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can put any game around them, right? Like once you kind of feel that agency as a teacher. And so many things come to mind as you're chatting there, Nat, like backing all the way up to the presentation where you're looking and kind of going like, huh, why is that surprising to me? And why is that interesting to me? And when we're young, we see what's in the textbook and like you had said, like already partitioned area models, right? And into very predictable, like a pizza, right? And oh, okay, that's obviously a, that's one of the benefits of a circle area model for fractions. That's one of the benefits. There's also some negatives as well early on. But like when you look at that and you're like, okay, I can see that's a fourth without even seeing the whole, right? I can use my spatial reasoning. And we see these different things and it's, you know, when you think back and all the things we do as children, we see so much of the same thing that we forget that there's other options. Like you take a square and then you actually show the same square, but show it on a 45 and now the kids call it a diamond, right? Mm -hmm. And you're like, mm -hmm. but no, that's just a square. It's just sitting on a point and that's it. So the same thing with fractions, it's like, there's so many different ways that we can partition. And something else that kind of hit me as you were talking is I love the fraction talks as a way 
to build from that concrete to, I know it's visual on the web, but I mean, you could be doing this concretely, like actual have the kids cut them out and play with them and partition their own fractions. But then as we start to work into more in-depth equality of fractions and actual operating with fractions, being able to take some of these images and these models and having kids create their own so that they have a clear connection between the visual of the fraction and what they're doing so that they don't feel like that permission asking, like you had said, like when we teach procedures first, kids are constantly asking us, is this right? Because they have no sense of reasoning. Whereas when you go back and they actually have a model to work with and they're looking at it and they're going, wow, this piece isn't the same size as that piece. I can't add those together. You can then play in this land of like, well, what about these two pieces, which maybe they are the same area, but they're a different shape. There's so much that you can do there. And I, behalf of the math community, I just want to thank you for putting those out there because you've left it with this open sort of playing field for people to utilize them. But hopefully people are seeing that you can do so much with them, even beyond the warm up math talk sort of approach. You can do that, but you can also bring them into your actual lessons so that kids could actually make more meaning. So I thought that was super cool. Yeah, I think the productive thing is anything. It's all product of culture, right? So I think if we produce a culture, even around these images, or even though there's potential richness sitting in them, we can kind of dissipate that quite quickly by creating a culture of like, hey, this is how. Even like you say, this is just like a term from Jennifer Holm, who's a professor in math education in Canada. It's like, this is just a procedure with pictures. (laughs) It's the same, right? Like, here's how. (laughs) I really try to like, uh, have this sort of attitude to get students to say like, well, maybe here's why. Like, I think this is like, here's something that I'm thinking. Well, here's why I think that. Or, or oftentimes I'll say, and the secondary students hate this, but I'll say, show your becauses. <laughs> like, they'll tell me something. And you know, the younger kids love that. And my son at five and six, like he like, well, show your becauses. Like, I don't know why you think that. But like when you tell an 18 year old and they're like, well, I think the logarithm, da, 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 like show your becauses. Like, and I don't quite take it the same way. Right. But uh, I think that's an important piece here is like, these things live on the internet and that's great, but they only kind of hold this sort of potential for richness. And a lot of that is the job of the teaching, right? It's kind of uh, activating and amplifying and accentuating that potential. Hey there, Math Moment Makers. Are you a dedicated listener? Like I'm talking, have you been listening for a couple months, maybe even a couple years? Well, if you haven't taken a moment to leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform, it would mean so much to us. It'll take you under one minute uh, so that you can help more educators see and experience the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. Uh, Do us this huge solid. Uh, We thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And uh, here is today's episode. Let's kind of move into one of the other resources that you've been talking about and sharing, which is menu math. Can you give us like a little elevator pitch or an elevator chat about what is all about menu math? Like are people picking off a menu? Help a listener understand what it is and how and why I guess we should be using it because I definitely think we should be using it in our classes. Those are kind of basic. So that was menu math was a much more intentional design than fraction talks. So fraction talks was kind of a happenstance occurrence. So I teach secondary, again, to kind of belabor that point, but a lot of the secondary mathematics content that I am responsible for creating opportunities with is very algebraic and very abstract in nature. And that's kind of one of the number one complaints from secondary teachers, like, ah, this is really great, but all there are rules when you get high enough, you know, which is not true. We just, the meaning is obscured by the abstractness, I think. So I started to look for ways to continue to have students make decisions with algebraic models, particularly functions is where this started. So I started with quadratics. And what I noticed as I kind of zoomed out on teaching quadratics as a whole is that generally we ask students to think in one way. And that is, here is the model, please describe it. So they would say, like, here's the model, oh, here's the x-intercept, here's the direction of opening, here's its width. Like, we're describing the model, but the model's given to you. And all I did is like, what would happen if I just flipped it on its head? And I said, well, here's some characteristics. Can you please build me a model that satisfies them? Right? That was the whole goal. So that's the design behind it. And so I did that for a while and I really liked it. Like students were creating, if we think of blooms right there at the very top of that pyramid, like they were creating some very good solutions. And then I thought, what if I could kind of like put this on steroids 
And so then what I did is I had these cards that I would flip over. And so in the moment, like we'd be in our grade 11 class that would be dealing with quadratics, I'd kind of like lick my finger and flip over three of these playing cards. And each of them had one of these characteristics on it. So like no X intercepts, never enters the first quadrant, like whatever. And everyone was responsible for building me a parabola or proving that it was not possible. And so I thought, you know what? So I put eight of them on a list. And one day, instead of saying, please build me one, I said, you can build me as many as you want as long as each of these is satisfied at least once. And there's eight of them. So you could build me eight separate parabolas, right? And then you're still creating and still lots of decisions. But the kicker with menu math that makes it really, really nice is you say, can you please build as few as possible? So can you think at that next level where you're not just thinking about what affects that characteristic, but which of those constraints actually pair really nicely together? Like which ones can I check off the box with one function for sure? Which ones are impossible? Can I do it in one, two, or three? Like there's all these kind of questions that come in so they're modeling, they're making those decisions, but also there's this next level of like, okay, now I'm looking at the synergy between all my creations, you know? And so I started with functions and then like the community does, they just took it and ran with it. So there's things from like second grade numbers, there's shapes, looking at like polygons, there's sets of data, there's calculus, like it's all over the map. I just got one on graph theory. I have to go back and relearn graph theory to see if I can do this menu math, right? So it's like, It's fun to see people again, like submit and be like, hey, this is what I used it. And the power of the structure is that it creates this opportunity to make decisions and decisions happening at multiple levels. And so those are all on my website as well. And again, I'm just building a table of everyone else's work. So there's less credit. Sure, the idea I kind of put together this structure that I've called menu math, but most of the creating and innovating is happening outside myself. And I'm kind of running around like a madman (laughs) trying to like get all the pieces up right in a nice place for teachers. But you know what? I think one of the big pieces is the idea. When you give somebody an idea like this, it's like they now have a tool that, of course, collecting them and sharing them, that makes life even easier so that they don't have to spend nearly as much time like digging and doing that deep thinking, even though I think everyone should be doing that thinking as well. But it's nice to have a place to start. But now that you have this idea, you go, huh, it's almost like it starts coming out of everything that you do. You're like, huh, I could see how I could take what I used to do with this lesson and I could just make the way I present it or the way I can just tweak it a little bit. And then all of a sudden now I have something that's a little bit more of like a routine that I can build in. Like I see some similarities between this and some of the open middle idea, even though open middle is different, but it does sort of force this more of that critical thinking, like all of that goodness that we're hoping that we can pull out of our math class. I think it's fantastic. You do see that in open middle too. Like when you have to make one decision to use one of those numerals, you're also making the opposite decision. I'm not going to use it in the next, right? And so you do see that give and take, that real critical density that happens with these types of activities that just gives students choice over the creation of the model. Yeah. I love this idea of like taking something that we would normally do and then like turning it inside out and seeing how that in the constraints can happen. Like there's another routine that's out there that is two truths and a lie. And it's kind of like a similar thing that kids have to figure that out themselves. Like they're going to create true, true statements or any kind of statements from this equation, but they got to build that equation to make it true. And they create the actual menu that kind of goes with it. I just always love this kind of flipping things around and seeing how kids can attempt to pull information from, and then you just sit back and listen and provide guidance. And I think this whole idea of constraints is really a winner for kids. And I know that your OAME in 2019 talk was all about constraints and constraints to instigate mathematical thinking. And do you mind giving our listeners a little bit of a Coles notes of that presentation? Yeah, I think the more I've thought about it, the more I've kind of gone into through the academic side of the profession, as well as the practicing teacher angle that I've lived. This notion, I think, has been more powerful than anything else in kind of creating how I think in the moment about teaching mathematics and also how I design mathematical experiences. And so I kind of put it all together for one of the first times around that late 2018 and then for OAME 2019 is this idea of what if teachers felt like they could have more autonomy over the problem? right? So what if we could have a way of thinking where, like in the moment, teachers felt actually in control of the problem rather than having the problem sort of run its course and you be out of control of it. Because I think that's a very common impression when you teach differently, like, oh, it's going to be a fiasco. So I kind of sat down again, and I'm a big fan of like sitting down and really trying to generalize themes of practice. I think I like to reify mathematics teaching to the point where I'm like, oh, yeah, now I can bring this back into context. So the one thing I noticed right away is we notice difference. We notice when things are different. And I realized that when I was reading a lot 
of Gregory Bateson, who talks about this idea that all information is actually just a difference that makes a difference. So we notice things like it pops into our awareness when something is different. And one of the examples of that is like, there's all those studies of the baby, right? Where you have three dots. And if you take the dots away, and then there's only two, like they'll dwell on it longer. So from a very like early age, we have this sort of biological predisposition to notice difference. And unfortunately, I don't think there was ever like you mentioned it already in this chat, like math class is just horrendously, horrendously predictable. <laughs> and so to do that, if that's the unit of information, something needs to change. The other thing is the teachers are collectors. And I think this is fascinating. And this started an internship when one of my friends came in, biggest smile on his face. And it was like, it's like mission accomplished. And then I was like, what's up? And he goes, I got the binder. And it was like this big moment on student teaching. Like what happened? I did it. I landed the jackpot. It's almost like I got the whale, all the lessons, you know, and he had gone through and photocopied. <laughs> I don't have to make it. any anymore. Yeah. And he had spent like, his whole day in the school that day photocopying the binder. And now we have the USB, right? So, or, hey, I got permission to the Google Drive or whatever we have here. Like this is the same analogous thing in our teaching day and age. But I think teachers, like we think that things teach for us. And we're, so that creates the impression that we're scared to change them. Like, oh, here's a rich task. I got it off this very reputable website from this very reputable author. It's perfect because it was there. And so I don't want to change it, right? Like, so there's this notion that we're not teaching that the prompts, if only I had the best prompts, you know, I'd be a great teacher. So taking these things, we often think that we're bad teachers if we take opportunities away from students. But I actually started just purposefully thinking instead of instructing students, obstructing students. So putting things purposefully in their way to create these ideas of difference. So then we could kind of keep thinking going. And so that's where this idea is born from is this notion of obstruction. So when we talked about cooking way, way back at the beginning here, taking away that third cup measuring cup, that could be seen as a bad teaching move to a lot of people because you're limiting what the students can do. But actually through the creative limitations and constraints on students, we actually see a lot of creativity and mathematical thinking come out. So that's what I was playing at there. And I think it just grants teachers a lot of license, right? And so that's one of my favorite moves to do in the classroom is like the, I forgot the teacher key sort of thing, or you're not going to believe this. I didn't tell you the right problem. Like I left out a piece of the problem. Right. <laughs> you know, Oops. And students I are like, you've got to be kidding me. But the beautiful thing is like, they don't blame you and they don't blame themselves. They just keep thinking right? Because it's no one's fault, right? And so the analogy, I think I told it at OME is the idea about the fishing story. So in Saskatchewan, almost everyone fishes. It's like what people do. I don't. You guys have lakes there? Oh, tons of lakes, <laughs> apparently. I don't frequent them. But uh, uh, my son went fishing actually with my father-in-law. He caught two fish. I have caught one in my life. So he's ahead of me. But I go to the staff room and everyone would be talking about their fishing stories. And there's a fishing story. Everyone says like, I caught the biggest fish. That's the classic fishing story. And the next most popular fishing story is I had this giant fish. I was doing really well and I almost got the fish in the boat, but then it got away. Like the line broke. And that's still a great story. And I sat there listening. Like, that's a terrible story because your story is like, I'm not good at fishing, but that's not the message here. So when you change the problem on a student, they don't get the impression that they're bad at mathematics, right? They get the impression that the line broke. Oh, okay. Now I have to reset. And then they go through this very valuable process of, okay, what have I done that's still valuable in my new context? What have I done that no longer applies, which is really important piece of mathematizing. And so I just started playing around with it. And I enjoy being whimsical and kind of like off the wall in the room. And, and that's very much fits my MO. But I've seen teachers do this with amazing precision, whereas leaving something out conveniently can actually have like huge ramifications for math thinking down the road that are just beautiful to watch how students adjust to a changing context, how they make a difference because of these differences. Sometimes I plan them, like I pre-orchestrate like when I'm going to slowly release these new constraints. And sometimes it just hits me like, what if that wasn't true? And that what if not sort of thing is kind of a nod. And maybe we can put this in the show notes as well. A book I read very early on uh, studying to be a teacher, which is The Art of Problem Posing, has been very influential. So they have this process called the what if not process. So you just list everything about a problem and then ask yourself, what if that wasn't true? And that's kind of the same thing. You're playing with the different constraints on a problem and it really breeds this sort of creativity out of it. I love it. So many things to pull at there and backing all the way up to, you had mentioned the rich task idea, right? Like it's perfect. I found it or here's the textbook or here's the notes from the teacher who's taught this course for 13 years straight. Like all of these things, I'm going back and thinking as well that John and I talk about trying to keep questions open at the beginning, make them low floor, high ceiling. But sometimes what people can hear from that is, oh, every question has to be wide open. And what I love about your message here is what you're saying is actually 
there's so many different approaches to questioning and good questioning and thinking through. And I think intentionality is so important in order to get at what you're after. And I love all of these tips. I'm hoping people are taking them away and saying like, huh, now I think what you need to think about, and I say you, like the we, all of us thinking is going, okay, I want to use constraints. Now the question is when, like, when do I incorporate them? Like when's the moment you drop that constraint or open it up even more or whatever it might be. But I think it's such a valuable tool to add to your tool belt. And I love the part of you said, sometimes it's very intentional. And then other times what I kind of heard, or I'm going to go ahead and tell myself this story that what you were saying is when you come up with one on the fly, it's like almost like curiosity, your own curiosity is taking over a little bit. And you're like, I am so curious about this. And John and I speak about sparking curiosity all the time. And there's so many different ways to do it. And I think kids eat that up when they can look you in the eyes and see that you truly are curious. And that maybe like, wow, he's not actually setting me up for this one. Like you want to know the answer too. Yeah. And I think so as far as when, like, that's a tough thing. So my first thing I would say against that is like, there's no right when, right? There's no answer to that. But the caveat being, that we always have a purpose when we're teaching, and that is to avoid inactivity. Inactivity is extinction. The second activity stops, thinking stops. So my goal at all costs is to disrupt enough, provide enough disruption, enough coherence to keep thinking going. And so whether it might be right or wrong, I want to throw out this idea of optimal, optimal time, optimal response, but really shift again, lean heavily into what was the effect, like what was the impact of my interaction with them? And you can always just take it back. If that's so disruptive, you're like, oh, forget it. Don't worry. Like, let's go back here. Like, that's fine. There's no like right or wrong way to kind of do that. And the posing of the problem is nice when you prepare it, whether it's rich or not, whether it came from a site that is very reputable or not, or a textbook or the teacher who's been teaching for eons, all those things have in common. Again, what all those mindsets have in common is that all of those, the questions live in the past tense. So we're not worried about what's happening mathematically. We're worried about how our students are aligning with what we thought would happen. And so we're actually orienting ourselves towards the past, towards our preparation, where I think when we're really freed, when we're really teaching for understanding and really responding to our learners, we actually are teaching in this sort of present tense, this idea that when that thing hits us, why not? Like, what is the downside of trying to sponsor that student understanding? You can always take it back. Like this is not binding in any way, shape or form. I think it's actually this very nice liberating thing for teachers to have control over their own classrooms is a fundamental uh, to teacher change. I think that's a fundamental aspect. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of teachers, we're getting at the heart of like thinking and fueling sense making for students. And so many of our teachers are always asking us, like, how do you engage kids? And I think people get hung up on that. I got to have that real world math problem, or I got to do that video problem, or I got to have like this really cool thing from a website. But uh, I think what you're providing here is such rich discussion that it creates that engagement automatically. And people often ask us, we're like, well, how do you make it engaging to do these abstract math concepts? And as we get into higher grade levels, people think, oh, I can't do a good activity with my university bound grade 11s or grade 12s because it's too abstract. But these frameworks that you're putting together, I think, provide really great fueling sense-making moments, but also great engagement moments. And I got to thank you for talking about them here and making them clear for everybody and, and also talking about the benefits of why like we can't not do them. So I want to thank you so much. We're looking at the time here now. We don't want to take too much more of your time, but uh, thanks so much for joining us on this conversation. And if you could leave everybody with kind of one last statement, one last thought before we exit here, what would you say? Oh, wow. That is a tough <laughs> one. one. statement. Math rule. Yeah. All mathematics education. I think that now teaching post-secondary, like teaching undergraduates and going back to teaching students, the fundamental piece is that, and we're learning this more and more as we've gone through this COVID era, is that teaching is about well-being and that's mathematical well-being or otherwise. And so I think if we cannot learn to develop a sincere empathy for those we are charged to instruct, we cannot do that job well. And so I would say start there. So that means observing the knowing as if you were knowing as them, like really try to it. step I beside them empathically, but also as human beings. And so I think if we can guide our practice with that, I think we will find ourselves coming out on top. Oh, that's fantastic. Well said there, Nat. It's been a pleasure chatting with you here. And again, like John said, we want to thank you so much. 
NatBanting.com has a bunch of goodies. FractionTalks.com. Anywhere else anyone can get in touch with you uh, before we say our final goodbyes. The NatBanting.com will get you there. Usually I'm fairly connected there. There's a contact form and things. I'm on Twitter a lot at NatBanting as well if you wanted to interact there. If you're ever bumming around Western Canada, like maybe we'll see each other in person or maybe I think on the website sometimes there's, you know, talks that I'm giving kind of around Canada. Maybe we'll end up in the same room someday. So yeah, say hi. I love to chat about math education and other things, obviously. Not as much as math education, but you get the point. <laughs> fishing and the like, yeah, I'm fishing. sure. I'd love to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Nat. We hope you have an awesome day. And uh, I'm sure we will bump into you sometime soon once these face-to-face conferences get yeah. back up and running. Hopefully, yeah. Take right, care, my friend. You. Yeah, you guys too. We'd like to thank Nat for spending some time with us here today. We felt like it was such a deep and worthwhile discussion. Both John and I walked away with awesome takeaways, and I hope you did too. We want to just give you a quick little reminder that registration is open right now for our webinar, The Tortoise and the Hare, How Math Class Missed the Moral and How to fix it. In this webinar, we'll be learning what we need to do to cultivate slow and fast thinkers in math class and how to do that, why math class rewards extroverts, and how to structure our math class to engage all students on an introvert, extrovert spectrum, how to teach problem-based lessons that are accessible to all learners, and how to help students conceptually understand their basic math facts. Yes, my friends, lots of awesomeness going on in this one-time webinar. And again, this is the only reminder on the podcast. This episode is the only time you're going to hear about this webinar in particular. So head on over to makemathmoments.com forward slash webinar to register for that one-time offering on January 12th, 2021. It's happening at 4 p.m. Eastern. But again, if you register, you're going to get the replay link as well. So head on over there. Make sure you don't miss out on it. We are going to be really looking forward to this one. That's makemathmoments.com forward slash webinar. In order to ensure you don't miss out on new episodes as they come out each week, be sure to head over to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform and do us a huge solid by helping us grow the podcast by heading over to Apple Podcasts, hitting that subscribe button, leave us a short rating and review. And my friends, you don't know how much that means to us for us to get that constant feedback in order to keep us going and pushing this podcast to new heights. Show notes and links to resources and full transcripts from this episode can be found at makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 110. Again, that's makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 110. Well, until next time, my friends, I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. High fives for us. And a big high five for you. If you are a district leader of mathematics, a math coach, a math curriculum coordinator, a superintendent and principal, getting teacher buy-in for effective math teaching practice is top of mind. And plans only go so far. You can make you know detailed plans and, and carefully designed goals with clear objectives and key results that are measurable. But that can feel like it all falls flat if we can't engage our teachers in the work. Working with teachers who do not want to change their teaching practices is one of the most frustrating and challenging parts of our job. How do I help teachers engage in effective teaching practices when they keep pushing us away? If you can't reach the tipping point in mass adoption of effective mathematics teaching strategies, then it's it's likely we won't see student improvement in mathematics. We have a free training uh, an accompanying workbook for leaders of mathematics like you. Uh, the, math, the Make Math Moments team, myself, John, and Kyle, walk you through our four-stage process uh, we use with district partners to create clear, measurable, sustainable PD action plans, but more specifically on how to also get teacher buy-in so that it drives student engagement. So step one, register for this free training, get your planning workbook, um, and then watch the training. Schedule some time on your calendar so you can watch it and go through the workbook. 
after completing that workbook, you're going to have a clear, measurable vision, action plan for mathematics to get more teacher buy-in, but also be able to hit your goals for the 2024-2025 school year. So head on over to makemathmoments.com forward slash four stages to start this free training.